Okay. Uh, hi, welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are talking today about Grendel Omnibus Volume 3, which is issues 20 through 40 of the original Grendel series. These are not easy comic books, either in terms of what they cover or in terms of how they are presented. Matt Wagner and friends um, present some of the more challenging comics of their era. Absolutely. Yeah, these these are dense, uh, <laughs> very kind of, uh, um, I would say, elliptical storytelling. Even today, they present their challenges and their rewards, which are many. Grendel is not a well-rounded comic. It, this is a decidedly dark comic. It started out dark. It ends dark. It arguably gets darker as it goes along. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it is not, it, it's not the sort of comic that uh, I recommend for the light of heart or people who are looking for <laughs> escapism or something like that. So it's definitely not that sort of a comic. But the interesting thing about Grendel, and I think you pointed this out last week, is that as dark as it gets, it's always entertaining, mm -hmm. which is interesting to me, how he manages to pull that off. It never, it does sometimes seem to get a little pretentious or maybe a little bit too on the nose at times or maybe take itself a little too seriously at times. But nevertheless, it still manages to be an entertaining comic. And also there's always a sense all the way through it, especially all the way through these three storylines that Matt Wagner, who's the main creative force, is really experimenting in a way that he kind of is forcing you to come along with him. If you don't compromise in some way and just enjoy the ride he's giving you, you may as well be looking somewhere else. Because this is someone who at this time, actually by the time we get out of the series, he's still in his late 20s. And he's really kind of trying to find his own approach to comics and playing around with a lot of really unique ideas. I don't think any of these three approaches that we have here has been done by anybody else. Right. The word that most frequently comes to mind is uncompromising. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's kind of interesting to me that the comic remained as popular as it did when it went down all of these crazy corridors and avenues that it managed to uh, run as long as it did. And, you know, it wasn't really ever canceled. These are the last of the original run in volume three. Uh, the series ended with issue 40. But more or less what happened was Wagner decided to go on a hiatus at the time uh, and he was still planning on an additional storyline. I think he, I think he was going to step back, and they were going to do the Grendel tales. This was before the whole Kamiko collapse occurred. And then he decided that he was going to do another storyline after that, which ended up becoming uh, War Child. But then Kamiko got into that whole disaster with. Uh, it's bankruptcy and all of those plans, including the Grendel tales, were, you know, put along the wayside. And 
in addition to that, also the Grendel Batman crossover, which we were originally going to discuss tonight, but I think I was being way too idealistic. <laughs> oh, yeah. And on that note, like I started reading War Child and oh my God, it's straightforward, direct, very clear comic storytelling. And it felt like such a tremendous intellectual relief after the intensity of these stories. And also, um, I think it's a better fit for us to, to talk about in conjunction with Batman Grendel. Right, because obviously also I was thinking about that as well. And the main character of War Child, which is uh, Grendel Prime, uh, is the main character of the sequel, Batman Grendel 2. So it will be a, a nice bookend. I think we could do Batman Grendel and then War Child and then Batman Grendel 2. That would be a good, I think, cohesive discussion that we could have next time. Yeah, but, and we'll talk this, about Jupiter Asante and how he fits into everything. I know you're a big fan of these the four issues that run from 20 through 23. The in-between years, I think, is what they've now been called. They're, they're incubation years. Incubation years, excuse me. I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of them. I have sort of a begrudging admiration for them. I don't think that they're entirely successful, but I do think that as a microcosm of the whole, these four issues probably illustrate the strengths and weaknesses of Grendel most clearly out of everything. They're incredibly, they cover an incredible amount of ground. I think just before we jump in, we should uh, set the stage that Wagner had sort of reached a Oh, a crossroads with Grendel. He wasn't sure what direction to go in. Uh, he had done the, uh, which we discussed last week, he had done the Christine Spar and the uh, Brian Lee Song storylines. And then he did the uh, the Devil Tales uh, four issues with uh, flashbacks to the Hunter Rose character. And Which were the only solo work he did for Grendel in this era. Where he was the writer illustrator, right. So I think he was at a point where he wasn't sure what direction to go in. He'd already settled into changing the art team for each storyline. Uh, the series had more or less coalesced into this notion of uh, that the Grendel possessing agency would sort of repeat itself in these different uh, individuals. But then I think he probably sensed that that might get a little stale. And the artist, Bernie Moreau, who had illustrated the Brian Lee Sung issues and had done some coloring and things like that for the series, so he was closely involved, he mentioned to Wagner, wouldn't it be interesting if Grendel possessed more than one person, in fact, possessed an entire society. And that really became that issue, this, this book here, and particularly issues 20 through 23, is where Wagner put that into play. And he, I don't know if it's entirely successful. I, I'd be very interested to get your opinion on these four issues. No, I don't think they're entirely successful. I don't even think they are mostly successful. I think they're interesting in a couple ways. I think they're interesting in the way he focuses on individual characters 
and has them be kind of illustrative of the larger world they're in. I think they're interesting as a transition from one world yeah. to another. They also have some very interesting storytelling elements to them. You know, this very kind of abbreviated uh, language that the characters use, um, the very kind of impressionistic approach that the art takes in many pages or many examples. And also it does land crucially in the fourth part with kind of this concept of religion being as much a commercial enterprise as a, a religious enterprise, which import, which really feeds perfectly into the next storyline. So I think from those standpoints, it's intriguing, but I think this is a case, especially the issues that are illustrated by Hannibal King, that just don't amount to what he what he hoped they would become. Right. And you know, there's no there's no downside to that. I'm not sure what the word is I'm searching for. There you shouldn't think worse of Wagner for making the attempt. Sometimes things just don't work out quite the way the way that you expect. And this is also a case I think where, you know, at this point he is 26 or 27 creating these comics. And right. I think his ambition just got a little bit ahead of him. I think if he was to do these works now, he would present them differently and have just a, a more nuanced approach to the to the world he's creating. Right. So in the first issue, we get a conclusion to the character who was the, I guess you would call it the protagonist of the previous four issues, which is the police captain Wiggins. And he has now completed those uh, novels that those stories in issue 16 through 19 were segments of, and he is an immensely popular writer, much like Christine Sparr had become a somewhat popular writer in her biography of Hunter. He is apparently a better writer than Christine Sparr. <laughs> uh -huh. The, the uh, Grendel books that he has written are huge successes. And so he has uh, got money. He's got the trophy wife. He's getting pressure from his publishers to agree to a movie version of the books and you're starting to see this uh, media embrace of the Grendel persona begin to occur and that embrace as you said with the further explorations of religion and so on begin to become more emphasized in the follow-up issues to this so he, he uh, again, much much like in the Brian Lee Sung issues, you have a narrative void that appears to be Grendel, although I guess you could make the argument as you can with the Brian Lee Sung issues that it's in his head. I think it's an external voice. I, I, again, I don't really agree with that ambiguity. I think it's supposed to be the voice of Grendel who is more or less mocking him as the story goes along. And then mm -hmm. he loses his mind, basically, with all of these printers from his publisher, from his wife, all the attention from the media. And he ends up uh, stabbing his wife in the eye. And, and poetically, of course, he stabs her in the same eye uh, that he has that red um, robotic eye. 
<laughs> pretty, you know, pretty on the nose there. But yeah, it's it's the, so on the nose. And you know, the cover yeah. of the original issue even has a, a kind of very impressionistic picture of Wiggins with his eye glowing red, looking like it's taped over or something. It's even right, foreshadowed right. in yeah. a way. Yeah, I forget who the artist was. Um, oh, Ron Turner. Ron Turner. And yeah. It struck me that those those covers were very reminiscent of McKeon's uh, covers for Sandman, and I wasn't sure if that was intentional. That it seems to have they seem to have come out just around the same time that Sandman prepared, uh, uh, premiered. Yeah, actually, so, I knew Ron, Ter- Ron Turner a little bit when he was doing this work, and he was doing his own thing. Okay. No cross influence. <laughs> So um, the, these issues are uh, just just to that the, the Grendel theme is in full force because you've got uh, I know Hamilton did the pencils and I he didn't do any work on Grendel before or after this but Tim Sale uh, inked the entire four issues and drew the last chapter and he'll and he's he'll end up doing the pencils and inks for the final story arc in the original series. And then Joe Matt did the cover uh, colors and uh, Jeremy Cox uh, did some coloring too. And these are all artists who have done work before or after uh, Grendel. Uh, so Wagner did a really, Wagner did a really uh, a great thing with he, he the stable of artists that he had that would sort of, trade off um you know duties as it were as the series went along so as different as each story arc is artistically there are some shades and echoes of other uh arc from arc to arc so this one you can see with the scale influence you can see some of that repeated in the final story arc and then christine bars storyline for example uh in the god and the devil story arc which is after this there there's a definite pander brothers sort of feel to i'm not that. a big fan of the hannibal king art i think sales issue sales solo issue is just much more confident and yes the world he creates is a lot more interesting you can really see ink the uh sales inks though um you know Tim Sale is definitely has a Frank Miller influence, and you can see some of that in these issues that he did the ink jobs on. I mean, it, there's definitely a, a Tim Sale feel to it. You know, like on page 42, you've got the uh, the image of this Russian on television, and it's straight out of Dark Knight Returns. I mean, even the coloring is of this that Joe Manfred is very reminiscent of, you know, Richmond Lewis's color work. You, you know, even the, the, the color palettes are, are quite similar to, to uh, Dark Knight Returns. So I could see a definite, I know um, Nick had mentioned there was quite a bit of Frank Miller influence in Grendel, and I can definitely see that repeated here. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubting that. The letters pages from the original issues talk about Miller frequently because i pulled out the originals since i hadn't literally hadn't read them since they came out there's even a little bit in you know these 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 further issues like the the uh issue 21 devil is conspiratorial with uh the use of 
images in the word balloons instead of words. Uh, so there's sort of a, a pictograph instead of words, and it's to illustrate what people are thinking versus what they're saying. And, you know, that sort of affectation, I could see that in, you know, like Howard Shaken stuff with American flag. And, you know, the use of the television is very reminiscent of flag and Dark Knight Returns and this whole like media onslaught. And it's just omnipresent aspect of media sort of affecting all aspects of modern life. You know, mm -hmm. it was a definite theme in 1980s comics and Grendel really taps into that. This devil is conspiratorial issue is very hard to suss out what's happening. And in fact, I had to, I've read it several times and it's always sort of mystified me what is actually taking place in this issue as far as the plot line is concerned. But you know, I, I looked at some online explications of it. And again, I understand what's happening in this issue, but I don't think Wagner pulled it off. I think he kind of bit off more than he could chew with this. Uh, the character's motivations are very unbelievable. Uh, I don't really understand what the plan that this guy has to sort of cause a world war. Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't really play out in a convincing way um, characters motivations are sort of completely unbelievable in this uh, everyone i know everyone is supposed to be at this point a completely materialistic and venal and awful human being so in that aspect i think it's successful that it illustrates that but as far as um, I think Wagner had it in his mind, I've got to have a nuclear holocaust in here, and this is maybe the best way that I can tie this into this whole theme of media infiltration of society and so on by having this uh, media conglomerate cause it in a sort of grasp for ratings sort of thing. It, mm -hmm. it just... I, it just really didn't pull it off. It's actually, I, I think, probably the worst, maybe the second worst after Devil is Hormonal uh, issue in the entire series. <laughs> it's sort of the, it's just not compelling storytelling, and it, it, you kind of get the point two pages in, and then you go, oh, God, I got another 20 pages to get through. Yeah, and I felt that way about all, all four of the issues. Like, I yeah. like the recurring ads in the fourth issue, I think those right. were really interesting. You know, there's a lot of stuff set that sets up the church for the uh, very commercial church that we see in Grendel 24. But, right. you know, this whole impressionistic element of it just didn't work for me. And, you know, when I picked up 24, God and the Devil, I felt this really weird mix. Part of what I felt was relief. Hey, this is more kind of standard storytelling and a different kind of uh, strain which is that there's just so much going on in this storyline, so many different elements. And the idea that kept coming back to me is this feels like a very modern TV show, like a what we're used to thinking it was like an HBO style TV show, but without any structure to it, just seems to kind of all be thrown at you all at once and it's either jump on and, you know, enjoy what would be the equivalent of, I don't know, uh, Westworld, right. or just kind of feel overwhelmed by it all. Because especially the first couple of chapters of this, certainly until the the Grendel appears on page 26, we find out it's Effie Thatcher, there's just, there's too much. 
Yeah. Well, you know, like with the incubation years, I think there were a lot of good, I, and, and that continues on into God and the Devil as well. I think there's a lot of great ideas at play uh, here. And I think with these issues, including God and the Devil, Wagner was throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick and really just playing fast and loose with it. And uh, not everything works. And you can actually see in God and the Devil where uh, he's maybe throwing some subplots out there that just never really get followed through on. Um, you I know, got a they, couple examples to you. Well, you, you know, the, the, I guess the relationship between Asante and his sisters never really feels earned or played out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not in this arc. Yeah, there didn't really seem to be a reason for that other than to illustrate that morals in the future are a little different than they are today, I guess. Um, This whole Elvis. (laughs) Yeah, St. Elvis is the Lord. Right. The new Uh, Mount Rushmore, which includes Elvis and Nixon on it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's just there to sort of be, oh, isn't that funny or isn't that clever? But there doesn't seem to be any real reason for it. And there doesn't seem to be any real justification uh, for it in the storyline other than that at the time in the 1980s, uh, the boomers were really big into an Elvis revival. <laughs> uh, and so he worked that in. But, you know, it's, it, it dates it a little bit. It doesn't add anything. It only takes away. And, and I can understand his motivations for doing those sorts of things. You know, just to get back to the incubation years, there, you know, for ex- just to give you an example of things that are really interesting in work, for example, the film of Grendel ends up getting made and the actions of the characters that are taking place in issue 21 for example you can see behind them the screen of the actors portraying Christine Spar or Hunter Rose and they're doing you know certain gestures are being repeated by the characters and it's mirrored by what the uh, actors are doing on screen in the persona of uh, Christine Spar or Hunter Rose. And it's that whole, you know, it's a very subtle and interesting way of setting up how all of society is essentially starting to behave like Grendel. And, and it's a really effective way of doing that. It's not to, you know, hammer over the head. It's just kind of a cool, interesting way of doing it. And the devil is hormonal is this whole, I guess, he t- decided to delve into these street kids. And That's again, this really, is really, really unsettling storyline in ways. I don't think he meant it to be uh, expand on that. Well, it, it's really kind of almost like a teen exploitation movie in the middle of the Grendel saga. I just, I had trouble with all the, um, with sex and violence with the characters, honestly, and I don't want to sound like an old man, <laughs> but it felt a little gratuitous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, it does, you know, the characters being presented with the red eyes. And I mentioned that uh, that started with Brian Lee Sung and also with Captain Wiggins with his electric eye. And that being a visual 
you know, um, key that that person was being inhabited by the Grendel spirit. And in that, you know, in the Brian Lee Sung issues or with Captain Wiggins, it seems it feels earned for the characters. But here it just in this issue, the devil's hormonal just like appears at random with people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it doesn't necessarily feel earned. It's just sort of like a cheat. It's just like a visual cheat. Uh, It's kind of lazy, I think. Uh, I mean, the issue does do a good job of, of kind of setting up where a lot of the creators would go with the devil, um, with the Grendel. Yeah, and I think that a lot of them did a lot better job in the, the various Grendel Tales spinoffs. Right, and they do a much better job of expanding that world of these street kids who would are in utero sort of what would be the the army of the Grendel Khan and uh, all of those storylines that played out from that where Grendel became a inhabiting spirit for the entire society. So mm-hmm. it points the way toward that in much the same way that that issue 24 points the way toward uh, God and the devil. And I actually liked, you, you know, the, the issue 24 how I'm sorry, issue 23, the devil's ecclesiastical, how that issue dealt with this whole transformation from Grendel as media and then uh, drugs and religion, how that all three of those things came together and coalesced into that single force. You know, I thought it did that very effectively. It probably was helped by the amazing artwork by Tim Sale in that issue. It was really incredible. Yeah, uh, and Sale so comes back and also does great work in the next, in the final arc in this collection. But, you know, so it's it, it seemed to me that he, with issue 23, he had finally, I guess, uh, m- managed to put the comic into that place where he set out to do it when Miro gave it gave him the idea of having Grendel be this inhabiting force that would affect an entire society. And what better way to do that through media and religion? And of course, in the 1980s, those were all televangelism was at its height. This whole question of of media and its effect on society was still an issue, even pre-internet. So I thought it was a, a great little piece of social satire. And I feel like God and the Devil sort of dashed the hopes for what that issue was pointing toward, and it instead went into this really um, erratic, sort of unfocused, pretty unhinged story arc. I know some people really like this story arc, uh, you know, that I've read reviews and, and commentaries on blogs and so on. Some people really think this is sort of the best story arc of the original series, which I find quite interesting. They like the Epi Thatcher Grendel. They like his costume, which, of course, is an amazing costume. Very, I mean, really, I can't argue with that. I mean, the costume is is amazing. I mean, it's just one of the best Grendel costumes there is. I mean, the whole sort of falling apart bandages, he sort of looks like... um, a mummy and then he's got that amazing cape with this with the it's very reminiscent of like a spider-man villain who might think the, co- the costumes feel so contemporary even now 
Yes. Yeah. It, it's a, it's really an amazing design, but you know, the, the whole storyline with the church and with Armand Asante, and especially this whole idea of the plan that the Pope has to, what is it? Block out the sun using a, a solar ray that is powered with bananas, which is just bananas. It seems like a bad plot line from The Simpsons. Well, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> there's a lot of elements to this story that I think work extremely well. Like, and I especially want to call out issue 26 or chapter 26, Devil's Tracks, which is a happy <laughs> story told through his eyes. That is legitimately weird and scary and interesting. It's got a focus and energy and kind of pathos that you don't see anywhere else in this storyline. It's just a really strongly compelling issue. It makes you feel a real sense of the kind of dislocation that it takes to have Grendel inside you. There's some images that Jay Geldof uh, delivers here with John, John Snyder's inks that I think are some of the most effective, impressive images of the entire run. And I would stick that against anything else in here. It's just a lot of the rest of this stuff makes no damn sense. <laughs> As with anything in Grendel, there, I mean, there are some real moments of, of brilliance intermixed in with some real uh, just sweaty storytelling. <laughs> well, there's so much there that just doesn't make sense. Like there's the, uh, what do they call the three... Three po four poles, and they have the different characters talking to each other in a dark room, and their other dialogue yeah. is against is different colors against a black background. It doesn't amount to anything. Could tell Wagner was kind of enchanted by that idea, but it never really turns into anything other than kind of making things more confusing rather than less. Well, I think what he was trying to do with that was to underline the anonymity of the people who were in power, who were sort of working uh, society behind the scenes and controlling things from behind the scenes. They were sort of this faceless, you know, indistinguishable body of people. You know, that's that's fine. I mean, that works on paper, right? But as far as coherence is concerned, yeah, it was a little difficult to sort of figure out who was who and what was going on in that sense so i agree with you yeah it just didn't pay off for me either right and you're right about the weapon I, like i don't understand it at all in the context of this storyline why is he creating this laser gun to blot out the sun why is bananas such an important force in it it really isn't none of that is actually really paid off well either we talked last right. time about how wagner is not great at sticking the landings for the endings in these storylines. And I felt like that was particularly weak. There's a lot of buildup for this potentially meaning something or being important in context that never really actually pays off in a way that feels satisfying to me. You know, there's a lot of stuff I do find interesting. Like I think I'm more sympathetic to Orion Asante and his sisters and that relationship. It gives the book kind of a emotional center, even though the emotion is uh, this romantic, incestuous love is nauseating in some ways there's kind of this weird sweetness to it also and that's also echoed the next arc with the way that sexuality is treated 
among Orion and, and uh, the women in his life. Uh, so there's this kind of nice frankness to that that I appreciated. It's certainly a lot more mature than, you know, the devil is hormonal. And I think there's a lot of interesting elements about Denver being the center for this commerce that's based around the church. That whole element of it is fascinating. But there's so much that feels very, yeah, like you're saying, 1950s sci-fi. Uh, and that relationship between Asante and his sisters and then subsequent relationships that Asante has, you know, it, re- it reminded me, again, uh, a bit of of uh, a shaken and American flag. It, it does have a level of maturity to it. I agree with you. I, I guess what I was uncomfortable with was why it needed to be his sisters. You know, it just, I don't know. It just seemed a little too unearned again. It, it, there's nobody else in the storyline who's got a free love going with, you know, their brothers or sisters. It just, I, I guess it was just an easy way for them to say he's an exceptional person who doesn't abide by society's rules and plays it the game his own way kind of thing. It just I, yeah, I guess um, there's an interesting thought that you're implying there, which is Orion's the only character who's either not crazy. Well, okay, I'll leave it at that. Who's not crazy? <laughs> we see yeah. in a more or less positive note throughout. I would argue any issue after Branley's son puts on the mask. So maybe that was Wagner's way of giving Asante a flaw. Is it a flaw though? I read I it as actually him having a, a loving more, adult co- a more complicated set of emotions. <laughs> yeah, By the time he kind of becomes um, the Grendel Khan in the next storyline, I think it really kind of humanizes him as he's making kind of one dreadful decision after another. True. But you could also make the case that uh, Asante is the most successful Grendel since Hunter Rose. And Mm -hmm. Nick had pointed out in in a previous episode how Hunter Rose seemed to be more capable of being the, you know, vessel of Grendel and more, you know, using Grendel as instead of it possessing him in the way he kind of possessed it mm-hmm. because he's such an exceptional human being that he was able to use that d- demonic force to his own benefit. Now, I mean, in the end, it ended up killing him, but along the way, he did manage to become a criminal overlord and a hugely successful writer and he did have that flaw where he cared for the young girl and he had that blind spot that she ended up exploiting which led to his demise which is interesting in and of itself but you could make that argument that asante is also like hunter rose able to harness that spirit instead of it harnessing him and yeah he does have designs Throughout God and the Devil, he does have designs of not only stopping the Pope, but also actively coming up with a newer and more just society, or at least a society where the powers that be are not, you know, motivated by insane actions, but rather through some sort of, I guess, some some kind of noble end, at least. I think he's the closest we come to a real hero 
in this in this story. He's a leader. He brings up uh, he brings peace on earth for I think they say fifty years. And that I think that he comes across in Devil's Reign as someone who's able to channel the Grendel Force to build a complicated society that has a has a lot of downfalls, which we can honestly see in modern society, especially right now, a week before the election. That. I uh, also, you could also argue, are beneficial to society or to the world in general. Or to put it another way, Epi Thatcher burns out as Grendel. He does a lot of amazing things. He's this incredible subversive force, which I have questions about also. Yeah. But he, he burns hot and fast. Brian burns, I would say, cold and and fast. And Christine burns... I guess, I guess hot and fast also. He's the only one who's able to die of a, basically of natural causes at an old age. That's true, right? He he, he makes a cameo appearance uh, appearance in Devil's Reign, and Asante actually goes to him looking for advice, which I mm-hmm. thought interesting. The because the. The Epi Thatcher Grendel seems to me to almost be a, a cautionary tale for Asante as to how not to behave as a Grendel, which is to simply lash out in a disorganized manner, uh, as like you said, a, just a, a how did you put it? Um, as a the the kind of force that Epi Thatcher is, he's a well, he's kind of a force of chaos. A force of chaos, yeah, but also a, a, he, he's lashing out at the system. He's like a, he's like a revolutionary figure in a way. Yeah, he's subversive. Subversive, thank you. That's what you said. As a he's subversive, a prankster. he's pulling all these tricks. He goes on TV and disrupts the media and grabs money and does all these little things that are subversive, but ultimately aren't anything more than kind of. Uh, annoying to the society right. he lives in, right? Or, or no one ever takes up his mantle too. He's got that spectacular entrance at the beginning of the first chapter. Yes, and you expect him to start to lead an army or something, and instead he stays right. this lone wolf, which I think is partially his own flaw. Yeah, right. Well, but it's notable that he's never he never leads a revolution, whereas Orion much more quietly does lead a revolution. Right. You know he's too crazy to re- lead a revolution. Yeah, he's 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 like a a punk rock. You know, he's just like this <laughs> this force that doesn't want to build anything. It just wants to tear down. Yeah. And when he shows up, you know, I mean, he kills that child for one thing, uh, and then you know he pours the the offering plate out in, uh, onto the people below, and and. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just what a, what an entrance. And of course, it's televised, you know, but but even though it's televised, it's even though it's reaching all of these people, you're right. There doesn't seem to be any interest of the people that he w- would lead in doing anything other than continuing on doing what they're already doing, which is just anarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, anarchy and following this very corrupted bizarre church 
Right. Which it just seems like a lost cause. And I think that that to me is where Asante realizes that in order for him to affect change, it has to be this top down, ultimately sort of totalitarian method of of changing society. You know, are you playing he's he saw Epi and said, this is a failure. I need to go a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, he acted in response also to this. You know, what we haven't discussed is the whole. Plot. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask you that what your impression was of the return of uh, Tajiro. Well, did you, by the way, when you were originally reading this, did you foresee that? I knew he had to come back. Yeah. Did you know, did you, did you suss out that it was the Pope before the big reveal or, or were you surprised? I, I want to say I, I knew I had a feeling. I also felt like the reveal was actually a bit confusing. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he definitely went for subtlety with the reveal, right? Yeah. And I was stuck kind of wondering, and it makes a little more sense with the second story in Devil's Reign, in the, the world of the vampires and stuff. Yes. But yes. it felt really contrived to bring this character back at this point to me. I think there's a sense, even in the time at the time, that it would have been better if Tajiro had just been killed by Christine back in Grendel 7 or whatever it was. And that having him come back to life or return to our world 3,000 years later or whatever it is in the body of someone with a name like Pope Innocent just felt like such a damn stretch. Yeah. it It's one of those things, again, I feel like it really was earned. I think it was... I, I, I kind of wonder if he intended it from the start and didn't introduce it in retrospect as the story was going along because there didn't seem to be any real until the few issues in there didn't really seem to be any real indication that he was actually a vampire Mm -hmm. there and then you know and then a few issues in they start to sort of hint toward it so i kind of feel like maybe I, I don't know. Maybe maybe he he felt like this the Pelin Cross uh, storyline. He's this cop who's been enlisted by the Pope to stop Grendel. That there was a way he could, I guess, continue on this vampire subplot using. Well, there's little hints, right, with that rodent mm-hmm. and those two guys with the rodent and the vents. That sort of carries through very uncomfortably through the first few issues, and then it's dropped. So there does seem to be, and you know, then there's like pictures of bats flying around and things like that. So I, you know, I think maybe he did intend it from the very start. It it certainly doesn't feel necessary. In fact, the whole vampire oh how necessary it it really is. I, I was guess just going to ask you that exact question. Do you think it was necessary? I guess you need an enemy, but it doesn't really seem to have a 
profound effect on society that society is already like fallen and crumbled. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that you need that vampire element to make things, you know, I guess worse than they already are. The, I guess that would be a good transition to talking about Devil's Reign. Because in that story arc, the uh, story arc is split into two sections. There's one section, which is drawn in a style that is quite reminiscent of the Devil by the Deed graphic novel and the uh, issues 16 through 19, where it's uh, mostly text-based accompanied by kind of thumbnail illustrations. I mean, not, not, not as much as, say, issue 16, 17, but there's quite a few illustrations per page. They're smaller. It's a real interesting design. It's very unique. I haven't really seen this kind of design other than, and I think I mentioned the other week, Kyle Baker graphic novels, like Why I Hate Saturn, uh-huh. has, has a somewhat similar style and then that is counterbalanced with these devil stories which center around Pelon cross and it goes back and forth so each issue is 14 pages of the asante story and then eight pages of the Pelon cross story which is kind of a backup and it's titled what tales from the underground tales from the underground Right. Takes place entirely in Las Vegas. The storyline that's taking place in the Asante sections has almost nothing to do with what's going on in the Pill and Cross backups. Other than that, there are repeated discussions Asante is having about the vampire presence in certain areas. Um you know, the warfare that's taking place with Asante, where he's he's uh, amassing his power and centralizing his power, uh, is not really, it really doesn't have anything to do with the vampires, per se. It has to do with no. other countries. I don't know that that vampire plot really goes anywhere it's kind of a kind of a shaggy dog in a way if i feel like it's something he set up early on and he felt like he needed to continue it i guess vampires were kind of popular in the what was this late 80s early 90s yeah you know um, yeah Uh, a couple things there so uh i know we're starting to run out of time I was surprised how much I got into the first half of the stories here. And I thought the fact that it's told as all third-person narration, not really very distanced third-party narration in some ways, actually made it more compelling to me, which I didn't expect at all. Because there was so much in that story about the political intrigue and the emotional changes that Orion goes through that... Reading it uh, really as a memoir, as we find out of uh, of Orion's child, no, uh, rather of Orion's stepdaughter, I suppose, 
right actually makes it really compelling to me in a way i don't think we it would have been if the story was much more narrative based yeah and especially as he goes through the intrigues of deciding when and how to attack other countries in this world and what weapons to use and even the way he brings back that stupid space laser and does something much more much more intelligent with it just really makes the storyline pay off in a different way than it would have otherwise yes it's interesting the the textual apparatus that it utilizes is very reminiscent of course of devil by the deed in a way that brings it full circle um so it does seem an appropriate stylistic complement to that and uh, uh drawing to a conclusion the first i guess era of grendel god and the devil had that really kind of painful prologue that was in text but it wasn't really it wasn't metatextual at all. It was extra textual. So mm-hmm. uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a character in the story. It was, I think, just uh, something that Wagner felt was necessary to give the readers a grounding as sort of an entry point into the storyline. But with Devil's Reign, that text, again, and, and Gerdel is, as a series, is very concerned with literature with text which you see with Hunter Rose being a novelist and Christine Spar writing a biography and uh, the whole issue of the journals and diaries of Hunter Rose changing hands and becoming a a means of communicating not only the legacy of of Grendel but also the spirit the inhabiting spirit of Grendel as well uh, and then here you have this like Devil by the Deed you're not told at the beginning who the narrator is but you do get a sense reading it that it has to be somebody who was intimately involved in what was going on because there's just so much explication that's taking place it's almost like explanation it's almost like a like a post facto sort of defense as to why asante did what he did uh why he did yeah. why he made the decisions that he did and sort of like this is this is almost like I read like a memoir to me. Well, yeah, it does read like a memoir, but it, but it's very very much in the vein of if I don't tell you this history, it's going to be lost. Oh yeah, history yeah. has a way of of changing the facts narrative, but this is actually what happened. You know, history may decide to tell a different story, but this is the story of what really happened and. In the, in that sense, it was a, a very compelling because you felt like you were in on some, you were being keyed in on information that wasn't readily available. I guess is is the way I I look at it. Um, that this is yeah. that that this is uh, the secret history. <laughs> so this um, is the book that historians in the next future era will look at to understand why. Uh, Orion Asante made the decisions he made. Right. And it's, and it's got so many really wonderful twists and turns to it. Uh, the right. whole deal with the different countries, uh, the the alliances and then uh, breakups with uh, Australia and with China and uh, with the Union of South and Central American countries. It just seems like really the most thought out book in the entire series so far. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in a way that is much more, it's in a way that's much more convincing um, than previous story arcs, I think. Yeah, it is. Because he's he's making it all feel much more real. Right. Right. And I would argue this is a creator who's just reaching his 30s, really starting to get his feet under himself and really starting to understand how to tell a story in a in a more well thought out way. Or or to put it differently, it's a way to use the element to 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 do his homework but not have to show all his work. Right. Yes. Yes. Very yeah, excellent point. I see hints of that even as far back as Devil by the Deed and uh, especially in the uh, Devil's tracks, you know, uh, 16 through 19. There's there's hints of it e- even in The Devil Inside. Um, but this, to me, is the most, you know, minus the Tales from the Underground backups, which I guess work on their own, you know, level. I think they do. Yeah. I think they're interesting. It's it's a well thought out world, and it's really interesting to see the fall of Helen Cross. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't work a, on the same a, level. No, it doesn't work on the same level, and it, it really doesn't. As I said, it really doesn't have any real impact on what's going on with the Asante storyline. It, it is an interesting character study of his downfall, and and the ending is pure Grendel. I mean, <laughs> it's such a it's such a the the ending of the Pelon Cross storyline is such a you know I don't know just typical Grendel ending right with him being you know insane being carried across the barren wastelands uh, outside a burning city it's just so crazy it, it you know and I think those backups if they would have made a really great direct to video horror movie out of that back in the <laughs> yeah and and if you uh, had them in that way that's just great a real kind of like John sort of feel to it just kind of slightly unhinged feel certainly better vampire uh, material than the uh, John Carpenter vampire movie so next time we're going to read War Child which would have been Grendel 41 through 50 if he had had a chance to take his five month break and then move to the next story and we're going to read Batman Grendel and Batman Grendel 2 are we also going to read Past Prime and Devil Quest we could probably fit those in Past Prime is the novel right Past Prime's the novel. Uh, we could Have probably read that. Yeah, we could probably get through that fairly quickly. And okay. Devil Quest is uh, short. I think it's only like 48 pages or something like that. So we could probably add those in and just take care of most of the Grendel Prime material all in one fell swoop. Wow. We'll I forgot read. Past Prime is written by Greg Grucka. Yes. It's actually not bad. It. it Stands up pretty well. I I read it again recently, and it and it's a tight little uh, novel. I have to say, I I was I was more or less impressed by it. It kept my attention, and it was the sort of thing that I kind of found hard to put down. You know, I I enjoyed it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have positive things to say about that one. I think it's rather underrated. That that will also give us an opportunity to discuss at greater length the whole fall of Kamiko, and I know you are very well versed in that history, and 
um, I'm sure you can enlighten me on some of the some of the aspects of it. Huge. The the fall of Kamiko didn't have such a huge effect on what happened with Grendel after this volume and you know the the devil uh the grendel tales miniseries and all of the things that came out in the 90s uh uh black white and red red white and black and all of those really transformed what i think wagner was doing with the grendel property well cool so let's talk about that in three weeks or so thank you eric this is really fun yeah it was great